Welcome back again to BadQuaker.com podcast. This is podcast episode 92. And we're going to pick back up the series with part three of the inevitable police state. Uh, now, before I take off on this su subject, I want to just say, if I haven't emphasized it enough already, I want to emphasize it here again. Um, what I'm talking about is not, uh, this is not an excuse for police bashing. This is not saying we have no need for law enforcement or no need for uh, uh, any kind of uh, legal activities by uh, agencies. This is, it's none of those things. What this series is about is once a society accepts the concept that there are some members of that society who simply by having a badge and putting on a uniform have rights above and beyond the rest of that community, once that is accepted into society, the police state is inevitable. And it's not a matter of individual police doing this or that or individual police accepting this or that. It's a matter of the entire society has accepted the path that will inevitably lead to a police state. And that's the purpose of this series, and that's what I'm trying to show. And I can, in the end, if we do this correctly... Uh, I'll be able to show you what the solution to this situation is as well. Okay, now I want to start this off, off as I have on each of these by reading a quote from L. Neal Smith. A libertarian is a person who believes that no one has the right under any circumstances to initiate force against another human being or to advocate or delegate its initiation. Those who act consistently with this principle are libertarians, whether they realize it or not. Those who fail to act consistently with it are not libertarians, regardless of what they may claim. L. Neal Smith. And uh, as always, I want to throw in the disclaimer, this does not mean that you can't have self-defense. You absolutely can have self-defense and the zero-aggression principle or the non-aggression principle. Okay, so now uh, back to the concept of the police state as inevitable. As I have stated, I want to do a real quick recap of where we've gone. I gave you a little bit of a history as to how it was that we, we began having actual police around 1800, starting in London and starting in the bigger cities, and then infecting out further as it went. At the same time, the state was expanding and, and becoming more than just a, a small localized infection. As the state expanded through the 1800s and came to its height uh, with, the progression, with the progressives in the early 1900s, police followed the exact same pattern, and they, uh, they were an embedded part of the process of bringing the state to its fullness. Now, realize that when I say the state to its full, fullness, the state has further to go. Uh, if you can imagine uh, uh, the, the life stages of human being, you get to be around early 20s to mid-20s or so, and you're pretty much the size and the strength you're going to be. You're pretty much at your peak of your physical uh, development somewhere around that time. On the other hand, you may not come into your peak of um, uh, of everything that you have the potential to be for years further. So if you compare that to the state, the state came to its physical 
uh, completion somewhere around the early 1900s as uh, the monarchs around the world were destroyed and the, the modern state stepped up and took over. However, there are still places in the world where the state is not fully does not fully have a grasp yet, but that doesn't mean it it won't. Um, the state still has room to grow, and uh, once again, don't get the state as the bigger entity confused with uh, what most people refer to the state as being the separate governments of, that dwell in Washington D.C. or London or Paris or wherever. Um, the the state itself is that that condition in your mind when you accept this concept that human beings need to be ruled over by a class of other human beings that are not held responsible for their actions and that they can tax us as they like and they can use aggression and violence against us as they like and they can prop their whole little process up with series of with a series of layers and layers of lies and distortions that's the state and and at this point in time really We've almost come to the point of where there is only one state, even though there are multiple governments in the world. We've almost come to the point of where there is basically one state, and that's still another level of maturity for the state, but it, again, is inevitable. Now, let's get to the police. I wanted to emphasize that it is not, as I said a moment ago, it is not the individual police that are the problem. Human beings act according to a series of sets of circumstances and tendencies. Um, however, that's not the problem. The problem is the concept of the state. Once, once people begin to accept the possibility of having well, this being a Bad Quaker podcast, that was our first interruption of the podcast. Hopefully I'll be able to clip that out and uh, not make the transition too awful chunky. Okay, so I'll try to pick back up on somewhere about where I was. I was trying to say that we we cannot blame the expansion of the police state and the inevitable police state upon individual police uh, any more than, you know... Um, I've said this before about uh, about other animals and their nature. Um, if you if you tease a snake and the snake bites you, you should not be angry at the snake. The snake has not done anything outside of its nature. And if you find a lion and you poke it with a stick and the lion basically bites your arm off uh, or mauls your head half off, you shouldn't be surprised because the lion has certain aspects of its nature and it will respond in certain ways. And the same goes with any other particular animal. You shouldn't, if you're out swimming around a coral reef and a shark bites a chunk out of your hip, it's not because you should be, you know, you, in the process of this, you shouldn't be angry at the shark or shocked that the shark would do such a thing uh, or decide that you want to pursue all sharks and hunt them down and punish them. None of that is a logical response. What you need to realize is that um, it is within the nature of that particular animal to behave in a certain way. And human beings are no different. We, when we take a human being and we pro and we provide for them uh, undue authority, the ability to dress up in a costume of authority, whether that be a judge or a police officer or any or a soldier or anybody else in society, you provide for them the opportunity to dress up to so that they appear to have some type of un, unnatural authority, and then you make them at least partially um, 
immune to their to the consequences of their actions and some somebody might argue well no no police are held to yeah you know no no there um there are distinct characteristics that police can behave under certain circumstances that a normal non-police citizen cannot do i cannot just flip my lights on behind some car and expect him to pull over under my command. I cannot just march up to him and demand his driver's license. I cannot demand from him that he get out of the car and walk a straight line. And yet we accept that from a police officer. Now, the arguments can be made, well, this has to be done for public safety. No, no, no. Now, you're falling into a trap. And this is where the flaw comes in. The flaw comes in all the way in the origin, in accepting the idea that the community cannot police itself, that you need to separate out individuals and give them greater authority and special rights and costume them in a way that separates them from the rest of the public and give them levels of immunity that the public doesn't have. And then you expect their behavior to not go afoul at some point. See, that's where the problem comes in with the whole concept of the state. If you take a certain body of people and you say, well, you, we're going we're gonna to set you people up and you're going to make laws for, to tell all the rest of us how to behave, but you won't completely be held to the same level of, uh, uh, to the same with those laws. We'll figure out exceptions on how you won't have to be held responsible for your actions. Oh, and by the way, you get your funding by taking it from other people, whether they want to give it to you or not. When you set up these processes, then when humans react in the way that humans are guaranteed to react, you shouldn't be surprised. You should know that that's the process that's guaranteed from the very beginning of this when you accepted that concept of the state to begin with. So when we accept the concept of police and we reject the, well, for instance, if you think about the old sheriff view, uh, going back into old uh, ancient uh, England and ancient Celtic societies, uh, now don't don't get in your mind this these legendary ideas of the sheriff in Nottingham and things like that that come out of literature and how to out of the states, uh, you know, the states t storytellers and and apologists. But the actual role of the sheriff, as, it, as you go back into ancient Celtic culture and ancient uh, English culture, um, that was not one of an aggressive uh, person with uh, extra human rights. This was an individual that was part of the community and was recognized as part of the community as an arbitrator. And uh, so, uh, but I'm not going to get into that for now. All I will say is that the abandoning of the traditional role of the sheriff and the adopting of the state's false version, the, the, and that is the police. And again, this is not an attack on individual police. This is indicating that, that the natural sheriff uh, position was abandoned and we were given this, we were offered this false version, this this uh, police version by the state and when we accepted that then the inevitability of a police state was guaranteed at that point in time the the state does not back up the state never unratchets itself and quietly slithers back into its den it always expands it always grows and if for some reason it overgrows its temporary boundaries it will pull back slightly only enough to where 
the minds of men are again slumbered and and so the state can expand once once more and it always expands far further than it was the last time and this is going to continue all the way to the time where the state reaches its complete and total maturity and at that time when it dies then we can we'll deal with that uh in a different time okay so then now i wanted to further recap what i was talking about just by running over some of the basic points um through my notes here so this is just going to be a little bit mechanical but I just want to get past it this is uh, what we covered in the first um, what is this the third this is the third in the series so this is what we covered in the first two uh, parts of this series that as I said the local police are a temporary transition to state to 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 a police state uh, the self-selection bias and regulatory capture are the two economic means, the, the mechanisms rather, the economic mechanisms that guarantee, uh, for instance, let's say if you jump off a cliff, the mechanism that guarantees that you're going to crash on the ground below the cliff is called gravity. So just like gravity interacts with, um, with matter, uh, the self-selection bias and regulatory capture interact in any type of a situation where there is authority and there is a governmental structure uh, and agencies that are involved. Um, okay, now I use the example of the Sheriff Andy and the, and the Deputy Barney Five. Now, I realize this can be offensive to some people in law enforcement, but if you really think about it for a minute, uh, take away all the cartoonish stuff that was put in there for, for, you know, for comedy relief and for entertainment on television. And if you really look at the, at the nature of the Sheriff Andy person, he was a good man, he was an intelligent man, he was a kind man, and he was entirely motivated with the desire to help his community and improve uh, the, the human state. On the other hand, the Barney character was entirely driven by the need to, um, to, justify, to justify himself and uh, to dominate other people. So we have the concept of police from its very beginning appealed to two types of people, the Andy or the A type and the Barney or the B type. Now at first, and for a very long time, the Andy types, the A types, dominated police work and dominated uh, police forces around the world. Um, well, I shouldn't say around the world. I should say mostly in Western cultures. Uh, in some cultures, the the B types jumped right out and started taking a, a stronger advantage than they did in most of the Western culture. But to a large extent, in especially in the United States and Canada and and in most of Europe, the A types dominated police work uh, at least in the beginning and f for the most part throughout uh, the last couple centuries. But a slow, s but slowly the balance tipped. And these uh, effects of self-selection bias um, and regulatory capture drove the A's into lesser positions and rewarded the B's. And as this took place, the B's moved more effectively into the government structure and were rewarded by this process. And more and more, it pushes the A's into lesser positions, lesser influence, uh, lesser, and, and in more and more rewards for the B's and actual punishment for the A's. 
So it drives the egg uh, groups into a position where um, it no longer is as appealing to new A uh, types to come into law enforcement. And it is more appealing to new B types to come into law enforcement. And I talked about how this exact same thing goes on in the corporate structure. And that's why if you have a really large old corporation, uh, what you'll find within the structure is that the middle and upper management, each generation of those managers gets worse and worse and worse, lazier, less innovation. Um, they intentionally drive down the more uh, the more promising go-getters, the honest, the hardworking. Those people are driven down or they're driven out into engineering or other uh, aspects of the company out of management. Well, the B-types... Uh, are rewarded by the whole process until now to the to where we've come to now in 2012. The B types almost dominate all the upper classes of almost all the main industrial and banking uh, uh, aspects of, of business. And that's because of this self-selection bias that's built in by the state. Keep in mind what I talked about, that the corporations would not exist without the state. The current banking model would not exist without the state. These are not, these are not natural aspects of the market. This is not, this is not uh, capitalism we're talking about here. This is fascism, where, where corporations and the government marry and produce this, uh, uh, I'm trying to use polite language, but do they produce this odd, um, metamorphosis out of capitalism and into fascism. And that's what we have right now. So we don't have the best the market can produce at the upper levels of the corporate world. What we have is what the state has produced. And that's what we have in charge of the main part of the corporate world and the banking world. Same with mass media, same with the government itself. And again, the distinguish, the, the distinguishment, the distinguishment between the individual governments, like those in Washington and London or whatever, and the bigger entity of the state, that thing that we believe in that we that causes us to accept these aggressive governments. Okay, now, um, there is one problem. When I was talking about regulatory capture, I went back and I listened to the previous podcasts, and I realized that I didn't, from an economics point of view, I didn't make a clear argument I made a lot of assumptions in my argument. I didn't make a clear argument that regulatory capture was taking place by police forces. I used the example, and I think it's a good example, of the uh, DUI checkpoints, but I didn't follow through and really explain how that is, how it becomes regulatory capture. And on the, on the small local level, it becomes regulatory capture because as the police set up their their checkpoint or whatever you know it could be a speed trap it could be anything that generates revenue as they do this they essentially um, they bring the local city council or the local mayor's office or whatever local structure that regulates the local police once the police begin to generate funds the the local government sees that not as something that that they are to keep in check for the safety of the public. They see it as a mechanism to bring in more money and more power into the city government. You see, the original theory was that local police are kind of the in-between between the go local government and the local population. They work for the population, 
and they work for the government. And in doing so, they protect both the local population and the local government. But when the local police uh, take on the role of providing funding for this for the local government, which in the past the the past model was that the local government is is funded strictly by taxation, which is theft, yes, but once you once the the local government is stealing all that it can steal from the local population once the local government figures out it can use the police legally to steal more then the role of the police is no longer just uh the same as like any other aspect of local government where they're just doing their job it leaves that realm and it takes on a new more important realm of um, as an as a revenue uh, revenue generating agency, and so the influence of the police begins to twist the minds of the local government, and in essence, the local police capture that aspect of local government. And once this starts to happen, we can see this on uh, happening um, in places like Los Angeles, where the local police are almost totally out of control, and the local police got to the point of where they started putting up all the uh, the traffic cameras, and local people there fought back, and uh, uh, there were even groups that organized that proved that the cameras did not reduce accidents in intersections. The cameras did not slow traffic down. What the cameras did do was generate funding for the city and uh, actually caused more accidents because people were more likely to accelerate at the last moment or stand on their brakes at odd times. And this actually caused more accidents. So in that sense, as Los Angeles teetered on the verge of the police completely influencing the city, the local individuals, uh, the local citizenry, was able to use the last gasps of their of their power to influence the city to get rid of the of the uh, uh, traffic cameras. But you know, this is what I was saying a minute ago. The the state, this monster, always reaches out further, and then when it gets its little paws slapped, it pulls back a little bit but never all the way back, never back to its original spot. And then as soon as the public slumbers, it reaches out further than it did the last time. And that's how this thing grows and grows and grows. Currently, there's a story out, and if I can remember to, to do it, I'll put a link to it on the on the webpage where this, uh, where this file exists, uh, where we loaded this file, rather, of a, uh, in Florida, let me see if I have this in my notes, yeah, here it is, the Sun Sentinel in Florida, where uh, the police have set up this surveillance. Uh, boy, it just it looks like something out of a Mad Max movie or something. It's just really this nasty-looking armed vehicle that's like a, some kind of a almost bus-like armed vehicle, and uh, or armored, I should say, armored vehicle. And they put this thing out with all these draconian warnings all over it. You're being watched. You're being watched. We're watching you. We're looking at you. And the citizenry just kind of like glances at it and goes on about their business. Well, we have, uh, things are getting bad, so we have to be safe. And and again, let me take you back to that very first episode of this. Um, the reason why crime is getting worse is because police are ratcheting up their patrols and ratcheting up the the amount that they're 
policing, and that causes a reaction. Now, let me let me just clarify this a little bit. Stefan Molyneux probably has gone into this more than any other individual in the liberty movement. So if it sounds like I'm stealing from him, um, I probably am. But um, what the way this cycle works is once a, once a community or once a society accepts the idea that a small group of individuals with way too much authority uh, can use aggressive violence to keep the other members of the, of the society uh, doing what what uh, let's have two two groups group A and group B uh, not to be confused with the Andes, Andes and the Barneys let's let's say group one and group two group one. Uh, are the authorities and group two authorize the authorities and so once this relationship begins and group one is given the ability to use aggressive violence and theft and group two accepts that as being okay now once that takes place then it will always get worse there group one will always become more and more aggressive uh, in this case, uh, think of Hans Hermann Hoppe's argument that when uh, one agency is given the monopoly, the monopoly of determining what is justice and, and determining uh, all, uh, all arbitration is carried out by one agency, including uh, conflicts involving that agency, once, once you accept that, then you guarantee that that agency will pretty much always choose in its own best behalf against the group two that I was talking about a moment ago. So once this infects society, this is the state. This is what I'm talking about. This is the state. Once we accept as a public the concept that one group of people can use aggressive violence to, to inflict their will upon us and they can steal from us as they wish, once we accept that, then generation by generation we weaken ourselves and we, we and it teaches our children that this that this is the way that you get things accomplished through aggression and through violence and through theft and generation after generation of using that uh, uh, we have uh, Nikki has her squeaky toy so we're going to be we're going to be entertained with Nikki's squeaky toy for a while here but that's that's how it is at badquaker.com once each generation is taught this from cradle to grave that the proper method for human beings to interact with one another is to use aggression and theft once you once you begin to bring that in to society then each generation accepts that and each generation grows more aggressive um, the other aspect of this is once you begin to realize that rather than settling a problem with your neighbor all you have to do is call up this aggressive agency and they'll come out and they'll use aggression on your neighbor for you and you're shielded from it you see once these two aspects of the state are accepted into society then it's a constant spiral of more and more lies more and more aggression and more and more theft uh, that's inevitable as each generation gets more and more accustomed to this process so uh, so then as society becomes more aggressive and as theft becomes more uh, uh, more predominant then the response of the state which created this atmosphere is to bring in more aggression and more theft and so if you look to the state to solve the problem the state has created 
then the state only has those three methods, lies, aggression, and theft. And so as more state comes in, it teaches society to be more aggressive, tend more towards lies, and tend more towards theft. And so the police are not the solution to aggression, lies, and theft. More police create more aggression, lies, and theft. You see? You have to step back away from it. But you can't as long as the cycle is perpetuating. And we'll get, that's our solution, and we'll get to that. Not right now, though. Okay, so I think I was going to cover regulatory capture, and I'm, I think I started on that when we got interrupted. But, um, oh, yes, and I did the local. I talked about a DUI checkpoint or a seatbelt checkpoint or uh, uh, speed traps or whatever. And, and the regulatory capture on a local level takes place when, when the local police start uh, bringing in enough funding to where the city council no longer has the power to stand up to them. And at that point, the local police become out of control, and you have situations starting to spark up now in the U.S. where literally where local chiefs of police have deposed the mayor of a town. The elected mayor is kicked out, and the chief of police takes over, and not just in one location. This is, a, this is starting to happen with more frequency. Okay, now um, on a on a federal level, let's just take uh, something for example. You have the uh, confiscation laws that started to come into effect in the 1980s, and immediately there was some reaction to this. But it but like anything else, first there's a law changed because there's a necessity for it. We have to do this. Think of the children, and so then as time progresses the fruitfulness of how evil this law is starts to become more and more apparent. Now, I have a, I have a uh, article. Let me pull this up here. Over at a wonderful website, the Future of Freedom Foundation, um, and I'll put the link to this on the page at badquaker.com, we have a, an article by um, uh, Jarrett B. Wolstein, and it's called How Police Confiscation is Destroying America. And it's a two-part uh, article. And I'm just going to tease a little bit of this. I'm just going to read a little bit for you. And I'm often clumsy when I read somebody else's work, so bear with me. My, my, my reading is not so great when, it's not, when I'm not the author. Throughout America, police are now seizing cars, houses, and bank accounts without trial and killing innocent Americans. The police now have the legal power to confiscate anything and everything you own without trial, conviction, or even indictment. Police are seizing cars, bank accounts, homes, and businesses from at least 5,000 innocent Americans each week. If we resist a police confiscation, they can even cripple or kill you with impunity. That's a pretty, and I'm stepping out of the article for a moment, that's a pretty hard accusation. But um, let's just keep reading here. Do you want proof? Every Wednesday, Section D of USA Today newspaper lists the latest confiscations by the Drug Enforcement Agency. There, in tiny seven-point type, you will find the latest list of weekly seizures of pocket cash, bank accounts, cars, and homes by just this one government agency. 
More and more government agencies are joining in this feeding frenzy. And you and I are the prey. Agencies now confiscating property from innocent Americans include the FBI, the Coast Guard, the Food and Drug Administration, the U.S. Post Office, the Bureau of Land Management, the Security and Exchange Commission, and the Department of Housing, plus thousands of state and local police departments. A sign of the times, many police departments now have their own moving vans for carrying away everything you own. Your property, your liberty, and your life are under siege. Here are a few examples. And then it goes on to document this wild, exagger uh, what we would hope would be an, an exaggerated accusation. But the problem is it's not an exaggerated accusation. It's real. Now, we don't necessarily see it. It's like, uh, it's like anything else. You know, people get up in the morning and they maybe see a little bit of news on the television and they go to work and their, their life is focused around the next eight or ten hours of trying to deal with everything at work and they come home and the best they can do is maybe get an hour or two of news and maybe look at, you know, one or two websites or something and the vast majority of us are stuck in that eight-hour-day, five-day-a-week stupor, and we just don't have the opportunity to really look around and see what's happening. But it is happening. It's happening on a greater and greater scale. And more and more, uh, as as this uh, infects police forces around the country, um, it, it gives them the opportunity now to become... Uh, far more than what they were just when they were writing tickets and, and stopping people for uh, DUI checkpoints. Now they have funding that rivals anything that the feds can bring uh, into a community. Now let me see if I can get back to my notes here. Um, it's probably been a couple of weeks. I'm not sure exactly when this was up on Lou Rockwell's uh, website, but Lou Rockwell did an interview with Bill Anderson and this this interview with Bill Anderson, and I'll put a link to this also on the page where this uh, file appears at badquaker.com. This uh, uh, this interview with Bill Anderson focused mostly on the work that Bill Anderson has done in exposing uh, prosecuti prosecu prosecutorial wow prosecutorial um, uh, shenanigans, um, and Bill Anderson has kind of. Uh, kind of been leading the the way on that. This started uh, and he goes into this in the interview. It's well worth listening to the interview. I think I think it's maybe a 15-20 minute interview, but it's really good. And be sure and get over to badquaker.com and click the uh, the link there and you'll get to the interview at, at Lou Rockwell. But uh, Bill Anderson started this process with the Duke Lacrosse case where the boys were there were some athletes that were had just horrible accusations against them. And Bill Anderson was watching like the rest of us were. And he saw some uh, some oddities and some inconsistencies. And so he started to look into it a little bit. And he started to see the vast amount of corruption that was in the prosecutor's office. And specifically the prosecutor in that case. How the guy had absolutely no inclination towards law or justice at all. It was all self-serving. And so Bill Anderson began exposing the fraud involved there, and, and it ended up in that prosecutor being debarred, and it was a, a big, you know, fiasco that took place. And fortunately, those, um, 
you know, the, it didn't turn out as bad as it could have for those young uh, uh, people involved. But still, their lives were turned upside down over it, and all because this prosecutor was, you know, he was the Barney type taken to its logical end. And um, and Bill Anderson's work uh, in exposing these people, um, he shows that this is not an isolated case. This is happening all over the United States. And uh, and even in the interview, he even mentions, I think he mentions, I can't remember if he mentions um, regulatory capture or self-selection bias. I think he mentions regulatory capture in that argue in that article uh i'm sorry interview uh just in passing in sort of the assumption that you already know what he's talking about but um but uh anyway if you can uh, click on the link at badquaker.com get over there to Lou Rockwell and listen to that interview with Bill Anderson and you'll see what i'm talking about so this is not just something affecting police if it was just bad police it could never get beyond a local level it could never get beyond a single police force of a single uh, localized police force. And this is why I'm saying that it's not the fault of the Andes. It's not the fault of the police themselves. Some people would like to blame it on the, on the police unions. And yes, that's an aspect of it. But the police unions are simply a part of the state. They're simply one more tentacle of the state. And all the things that I talked about that that affects the way the corporate structure is and the, affects the way the state, uh, the way the government structure is and the way the media, all those things that reward the B personalities and, and, and punish the A personalities, those all work in the police unions as well, driving out those who, who originally came in seeking good and seeking to serve and rewarding those Barney types that are just there self-serving and just there to dominate people. Now, what, so what is the ultimate end of this? Well, I want to bring up something that a good friend of mine uh, that I've known on the Internet for a long time uh, named Kelly uh, brought to my attention, and, and that is in regards to something that almost, you know, a lot of people, let's say a lot of people, oh, we're going to have some dog barking. The dogs are on full alert, and we're going to have dog barking interrupting the Bad Quaker podcast once again. All right, let's see if we can pick this back up. The dogs seem to be calmed down. So once again, I have to try to figure out what I was talking about before the dog interruption. Um, I think I was talking about my friend Kelly that um, gave me a, uh, a link to... You know, if I can remember, I'll go ahead and put this link up as well. This was to... I think it was a, a NPR... Uh, podcast that was in regards to a guy who had been uh, a guy who was a he's a devout Catholic and uh, knowing about the the history of the Spanish Inquisition he decided to investigate it to try to find out how something that he had so much uh, faith in could have been so dramatically wrong as to have the Spanish Inquisition. So he tried to figure out a, a reason for this. And as he looked it all over, and this is not an apology for the church, to the, for the Catholic Church at the time. He he is more than willing to lay blame uh, in within Christianity and within the Catholic Church as uh, as a part of it. 
But what he found was that, uh, and he lays this all out very well in the uh, in the interview that's in this podcast uh, with NPR. Uh, unlike popular belief, and unlike even what we've been taught in state schools and so forth like that, the Spanish Inquisition, and of course there were multiple Inquisitions, but the Spanish Inquisition was an act of the state. Now, that's not to say the church was innocent. The church was complacent. Uh, the church was involved. But it was purely a political act of the state. It was a state-sponsored purging, um, specifically by uh, Isabella and Ferdinand, the famous Queen Isabella that financed um, uh, Christopher Columbus. This was an act of state aggression upon certain aspects of the, the, of, of the uh, people in Spain. And there was a lot of money and there was a lot of power involved. But it was strictly a state act. The fact that the, that the church was used as a vehicle for this process was almost, it's almost secondary to the fact that the state itself was doing it. And oftentimes, like, for instance, so, uh, today, there can be, uh, all kinds of violence that can take place in the name of a particular religious organization, but when you boil it all down, you find out that really what we're talking about is state aggression. We're not talking about, um, it's not a part of the actual religion. It's, it's just a state aggression use, under the guise of religion. Uh, so uh, an example of that could be you know, some of the propaganda from World War II. Um, some of the propaganda in the United States made out the Japanese people to be religious fanatics and uh, that this was all the, the fault of the emperor. Uh, when the facts came out, it was uh, the emperor was pretty much a pawn in it, and it had nothing to do with their religion. It had everything to do with the uh, fascist form of, of militant government that they had with the former warlords, the the former... Um, Anyway, uh, that's uh, this. <laughs> this is not a podcast on Japanese history. This is about police, um, the inevitability of the police state. So I'll try to get back to topic here. So anyway, yeah, um, uh, that's. I was just throwing that out about the Spanish Inquisition. That that's an example of of the inevitability of where the state will take things at some point in time. The state will once the state gets enough power. Uh, the little excuses, whether it's the drug war, whether it's people speeding, or whether it's uh, you know securing the borders, or outside terrorism threats, or interior terrorism threats, or it, it doesn't matter. In the end, in the end, when the Inquisition starts, the real purpose for it will be government power and the aggression of the state, and it will be to feed the state and make the state stronger. And as I said, this is not just a problem within police forces, and it's not just a problem even with uh, law enforcement in general, as in even through the prosecut prosecutors and so forth like that. Um, this is a much bigger problem that's based on the very existence of the state. There was a situation just a few days ago that came uh, to light. A lot of people are talking about it in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area in California, a, a, a local school 
evidently there were six-year-old kids playing on the playground and they were playing tag. And in the process of playing tag, a teacher observed one of the children touching the other person, the other child somewhere in the leg or groin area. Now that's pretty vague, but the teacher decided that it was sexual, that it was a sexual assault somehow. Uh, six-year-olds playing tag and the teacher saw one of them tag the other and decided that it was a sexual assault. So they took in this six-year-old into the principal's office where for hours he was uh, grilled by by these adults. He was left alone. They used all the standard tactics that police and prosecutors use to intimidate witnesses or to intimidate an individual into confessing to a crime. Um, They used all the standard tactics that the police use until they eventually convinced this six-year-old boy to confess that he had sexually assaulted this other child. Now, eventually his parents found out about it and they had to go hire a lawyer and they eventually got the the school district to uh, recant and... (laughs) and uh, clean the, the little boy's record and get this off his record. Of course, they had to take the, the boy to a separate school, get him away from that school because it was just, oh, the, 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 you know. And you can't undo the damage of taking the six-year-old into a room and adults just verbally uh, abusing him for hours to get him to confess to something he doesn't even understand. Now, this takes us back to this, to this podcast from the uh, NPR if you if you take the time and listen to this podcast about the Inquisition and you listen to the guy describing in detail um, the methods used during the Inquisition, the questioning methods and the even the torture methods that were used, the intimidation methods, the fear tactics, the all these things are exactly what are in today's acceptable um, methods of um, interrogating individuals whether they're in a police station or whether they're you know uh you know the the terrible terror oh no the 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 terrorists have to be tortured we have to waterboard them we have to do these things for our for our safety because otherwise they'll do these horrible things to us well it was the same excuse back then it was exactly the same excuse uh and it's the same excuse that they used with this child and this six-year-old child in the in california um, this is for the greater good. You, This concept that comes along with the state that you can do something bad and then get a good result. You can, you can authorize some people in society to use aggressive violence so that we can get a good result. You see, this is where the flaw comes in. The idea that two wrongs can make a right. Now, I'm sure that everybody listening to this believes in your mind. You know, you, you know this, that two wrongs cannot make a right. And yet that's what the state is. The state is the, is the existence of the idea that wrong, aggressive violence, theft, consistent li- con- continuing lies, that somehow these wrongs can produce a right, can produce a good. This cannot happen. It's, it's illogical to think that going to someone and aggressively stealing a third or 20% or 50% of their wages, that you can somehow then take that money and go do enough good with it that it makes up for the bad of stealing. This, this whole 
processes such backward thinking that it creates generation after generation of children growing up being taught these two opposite things. You can't do a wrong and make a right. You can't even do two wrongs and make a right. You can only do good to make things good. And yet, the government is going to tax you. The government is going to aggress upon you. The government is going to tell you what to do with your property. The government is going to tell you what you can and can't ingest into your body. That's, oh, that's fat. You can't have that. We're going to outlaw that. You can't have this type of food. We're going to outlaw that. We're going to punish this particular behavior with special types of taxes because we've decided it was bad for you. So we're going to regulate your life like that. You see, once you accept that as being good, and you're teaching your children at the same time, two wrongs don't make a right, but then you're walking, you're, you're saying one thing with your mouth, but you're doing something else with your feet. You're walking one thing, but you're, ta you, but you're talking something totally different. And you teach your children to live in, and accept this lie. That's what degrades society. That's what drives us further and further evil. And now, there's, there's this huge myth, and even many people in the liberty movement have bought into this. Uh, and, and no, it's not a myth. It's, it's a lie. It's a lie of the state. This idea that things are getting better. No, they're not getting better. Now, the market is always expanding. The, the free market, or what's left of the free market, is constantly innovating and constantly, the, uh, through the, the, the remnants of capitalism that still exist out there in the market, um, new products are introduced and, and life gets better in the sense that new, we can develop new machines to do new tasks for us and we can figure out new innovative ways of doing things that make things easier. But when it comes to the what the department that the state, the, a, the actual a avenues of our lives that the state is involved in, those things are getting worse and worse and worse, and they have been getting worse for thousands of years. We are far less free today than we were 20 years ago. The state has constantly been on the move, constantly been growing, and constantly been becoming more and more aggressive. And the next generation will have more of its rights taken away than this generation. This, you know, this, this idea that, well, we're going to draw a line in the sand and you can't go, once it gets to this point, we're going to do something about it. Uh, well, sorry, you can't. You, you can't. That, that is not a logical path to take. And here's something else. Let me just address this, too. There is this really, really dangerous, yeah, it's worse than dangerous. It's, it's harmful, it, this, this harmful lie that is believed by so many people in the liberty movement that as long as you still have, quote, unquote, gun rights, that we're still okay. We can still do something about it. No, you can't. No, you can't. Fighting the state. If you think the government is the problem, first off, you're wrong. The government is just, is just the visible thing that you see. You, you can replace the government. Sure, we can tear down the government tomorrow. But what comes back will be worse. The state is your enemy, not the government. The concept that there are people who can use aggression and lies and steal from you. That's the problem. The state. And you can't use the weapons of the state to defeat the state. You can't use your guns to defeat the state. The state knows exactly how to deal with that. If you don't believe me, go on a little road trip, drive down to Waco, Texas, 
and look at the graves. The state knows how to deal with people who fight back using the weapons of the state. Now, I'm not saying don't have a gun. In the room that I'm in, well, no, I won't finish that sentence. I'm not saying don't have a gun. You have a right to protect yourself, and you have a right to own anything that you feel will protect you. But hear this if you hear nothing else from this podcast, and hear this if you hear nothing else from badquaker.com. Hear this one thing. You cannot defeat the state by using the weapons of the state. You can't do it. The only way to defeat the state is to withdraw from the state, is to recognize the state as a, as a thing that we believe in, as an imaginary thing that we have accepted in our minds, and you stop accepting it in your mind, and you start moving towards freedom and liberty by doing it, not by fighting the state, not by going out jousting at windmills. You can't beat the state that way. We beat the state by realizing that the state is imaginary, and we stop believing in it. And then we begin acting as free individuals. We begin trading in underground uh, everything that we can. Uh, we do it without the permission of the state, behind the state's back, underneath the radar, so to speak. All those other phrases like that that don't come to mind immediately. We just do it. We just become the free economy. And we do it without asking permission and the state is going to go on and it's going to grow to its maturity and it's going to do what it's going to do. Now let's get into a little bit of a theology thing here. I try to avoid this as much as possible because I don't want to sound like the crazy guy with the sign out on the street corner screaming biblical passages at the top of his lungs waving a sign that says the end is near. Well, first off, the end's not near. We have generations to go, folks. We have generations to go. Like, I hate to quote... Well, okay, never mind, I won't. Um, so, <laughs> so to get back to uh, the fact that I try not to quote Bible and try not to look like the crazy guy on the street corner with the sign, and yet, if you look at the end of the book and you read what happens as the state grows, and as it gets more and more powerful, it gets to the point of where it begins to lash out and fight and struggle. And at some point in time, it will control, as far as what it knows to exist, it will control all commerce, it will control all travel, it will control all governments, it will control everything that it knows of. And at that point in time, it will have nothing else that it can dominate, and it will begin to destroy itself. And going by biblical passages, we're talking about something like a third of mankind will be wiped out by this beast, by the state, by that old dragon, by the decision of decision, by the decisions of human beings to believe in an entity that doesn't exist. By doing that, we believe in the state. We believe in that old dragon. And when he gets to a certain point of desperation, and he begins to devour his own. We have to be in a position. Generations of us have to prepare so that we are in a position. So that that thing can thrash around and do everything that it's going to do. 
And when it dies, then we stand up and we win. Folks, thank you very much for listening to BadQuaker.com. For more on liberty, the zero aggression principle, and property rights, go to BadQuaker.com. Thank you very much, folks.